Hello, Band in Minnesota listeners. This is one of your co-hosts, Brad Mariska, and I'm asking you to help us to reach the hundreds of band directors in Minnesota who don't yet know about our podcast, who haven't seen that you've rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Oh, you haven't yet reviewed us? Well, now's as good of a time as any. So, even though I don't have Sarah McLaughlin music playing in the background, do your part. Help a band director. Share. Rate. And review. Okay. Good afternoon, Bradley. Oh, hey, Jerry. How's it going? It's going good. I had a nice day. The weather was a little better today and got outside. Took yeah. a long Yeah. A good long we walk. Could do that. That's awesome. You did some painting. I know you're painting uh, the inside of your, your house again. I'm listening to music that I haven't listened to in a long time and painting. I love that. For about an hour and a half a day. I can pace That's, myself. Yeah. That's right. I went for a big long run yesterday and I had to pace myself. I ran uh, <laughs> 10K, which is, um, that's all, it was a good long run, but it was, it was nice out. So, um, yeah. but you got to pace yourself if you're going to run. Are you, from, are you training for something or just getting just, out? I'm just running to get away from my house for an hour <laughs> yeah. to get out of the house. I get um, it. I emotional get it. balance, physical well-being. Yeah. Well, we've got a good one today, I think. Uh, Sarah Minette is a person I've known for a very long time, and uh, I really look forward to the conversation with her. Uh, since I worked with her in the Encore Wind Ensemble, she's gone and gotten her PhD, and uh, I think there's a very different Sarah than I knew back when. We'll talk about that. Yeah, but, I've, uh, I've actually only known Sarah for a couple of years, so I, I think maybe I know the new Sarah more than... <laughs> <laughs> if there's an old and new, but I know what yeah. I know what graduate school does to people. Yeah. So <laughs> there is an old chapter and a new chapter, and Sarah's definitely <laughs> on the new chapter. So uh, one part of her, one question we're going to explore is project-based learning versus performance-based learning, and I'm really interested in yeah. talking about that. Well, it's because it's not only like super important because uh, of the the students that you're reaching that may not be. Um, members of a school band or choir or orchestra. But in these days of distance learning, um, I think project-based learning might be something that is really, really effective. And there's also, I know Sarah's probably going to talk about this. Um, we, we just did a really great episode with Amy Powers about equity. And I know that's something that Sarah is really passionate about. And one of the reasons that her focus in teaching has turned in this direction in recent years is because it is equitable and it's reaching students that maybe weren't getting music education previously. So I'm excited to hear more about it. Right. So I think we just want to jump right in here. So hi, yeah. Band of Minnesota listeners. Welcome to this podcast. It works to address the hottest topics on the minds of Minnesota band directors. My name is Jerry Lucart. And I'm Bradley Mariska. And we will be joined by colleagues and friends from around Minnesota. In this episode, we will visit with scholar, musician, learner, and educator, Dr. Sarah Minette. With Sarah's diverse background, education, and interest, we have much to discuss. So I think we should get right to it. Hi, Sarah. 
Hi, Jerry. Hi, Bradley. Welcome. It's good to see faces during <laughs> all of this. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? It is. <laughs> well, Sarah, we've known each other for a long while. Um, your career has taken a lot of different, many directions. Could you tell us a little bit or tell us our listeners about your personal journey? from being a band director to a secondary general music teacher? Yeah, um, for sure. So um, when I graduated from college in 2003, um, I was a band teacher. I, I mean, that's what I went to school for. I don't even know that we had secondary general methods. Um, and we had elementary methods, but I think all I remember was learning auto harp. <laughs> I don't even, and I just, right? uh, yeah. And I was just like, why am I learning auto harp? So, I mean, that certainly was during a time in the early two thousands where there was still really, a, a, and there still is a track for like band and, and choral or, or rather instrumental and choral slash general. And the option of anything else just wasn't an option, at least where I was at. And so I taught band and I was a proud band director and I loved teaching band. Um, and I taught middle school for the bulk of my like band life. Um, and, but it, but it was when I started my master's at St. Thomas that I, I kind of started to consider other, other ways of engaging students in music. And, um, St. Thomas really started to make me consider what else could we do? <clears throat> and when I went off to my PhD to start my PhD, that was the fall of 20 or no, the summer of 2014. Um, I was still a band person. Um, and I really held on to that identity. But as we know, grad school, like I always kind of, make an analogy like grad school takes your brain out of your head shakes it up and puts it back in and like there's this whole new way of understanding things and um it was actually and it takes another few years to put it back together oh my god seriously right. still trying to figure it out um <clears throat> but it was really the spring of my year down at arizona state in sandy stoffer's class listening and creating where i was just like oh my gosh, I was having all these moments of making music and creating that I have never experienced before. And I was getting to create my own thing. And I wasn't recreating something that was already on a piece of paper. I was taking my ideas and I was 36 at the time and I felt so liberated. And I was just in this moment of like, this is the best thing ever. I love making music this way and we would be doing covers and we were exploring, um, you know, different textures and we, we got to play. I mean, Dr. Stoffer every week would pose a musical problem and basically she said, go off and create. <laughs> it's just like, this is amazing. At the same time though, um, I was playing in the all university band because I still wanted to play. So I was playing with all the students that we generally teach in our high school bands and middle school bands, the students that aren't in, um, who aren't music majors, but love making music still. And that right. was also a huge eye opener, A, because I could have been their teacher. <laughs> but two, right. 
the love that they had for it and the enthusiasm. And it was really interesting and eye-opening because I was a TA for music, music education classes. And they, the students, it was really interesting. The students were like, well, why do you want to be in that band? Oh, my God, blah, 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 blah. They were looking down at the university band. And I said, now, hold on for a second. These are your future students. These are the students that you are going to be working with. These are the students, the multitudes of students who love music, but maybe don't want to necessarily pursue a music, a music degree. They just love making music. Right. So it was just like this marriage of working with, kids who love music and then also like rediscovering what it means to be a musical being in Dr. Stoffer's class. And so I came back. You know, I'm, Sarah, oh, I'm witness to that all the time at the University of Minnesota bands. We have six concert bands. Mm -hmm. Four of them are, four of them are just the one, like the one you just described mm -hmm. and the love and joy and passion and commitment and what they're going to bring to society as music, under, understanding music, love of music, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So I, I really hear what you're saying. Yeah, it truly was. And so just to fast forward to where I'm at now, I was sitting in the middle of an interview for a job um, after I'd come back from ASU and it was for a middle school band job. And cause I was kind of like, well, I mean, I need a job, but I, I mean, I could sort of, I'd, I'd like to go to back to band, but I was still like, not sure and um, what I'd be able to do with my newfound like understanding. And I was sitting in the middle of an interview and they kept referring to me as the band director, the band director. And I was like, I don't think I'm a band director anymore. And it was super exciting, but it was also like, oh my gosh, what, what am I? <laughs> so I was starting to have this identity crisis of I'm a band director or am I, what, what am I? And then the job, that I have at South like fell in my lap and it was like the most amazing thing. I spoke with Eric Sayer, who is my colleague, who's the band director there right now. And we talked on the phone for like an hour and just hit it off. And he described what they were looking for. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. And so five years later, um, went from starting a guitar program to guitar class and um, sound production. So it's been, it's been quite a trip. Well, I'm just, I'm wondering, um, you know, the majority of people who are listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. the right. audience is band directors. Um, and the majority of us spend most of our time leading performance-based ensembles, mm -hmm. rehearsal, um, concerts in a very traditional, um, formal way. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit more about how your classes are not only different in the way that they look, uh, you know, by describing what the classes are themselves, and then also mm -hmm. how they're project-based as opposed to performance-based? Yeah, and before I do that, I'm gonna point to an article. It's a really easy read. It's like two pages. It's out of NEJ. I think it's Music Educators Journal, and it's by Randall Alsup. And it's um, kind of, I think it's called the both and movement. Um, and it's talking about how performance-based directors, educators, facilitators could also embrace these other opportunities. And he really encourages band directors to teach a class outside of a performance-based class because they'll feed into each other. And um, I'm, 
I'll get to your answer in yeah. just a, a second. Well, but I, I love that, by the way, because um, at Farmington, we were starting a um, rock band curriculum, mm-hmm. year, which uh, is intended to be project-based and not yeah. not focused on performance. So um, I definitely want to read that article. Yeah, it's really great. And so with that understanding that when I started at South, I also taught, in addition to developing a guitar program, I was also the beginning band director and the jazz two director. And I very much approached it in a project-based way. Um, and so I think that even though it was beginning band, the focus was less on performances because these were high school kids that may or may not want to um, continue in band. Maybe they're just taking it for a fine arts credit. Um, but we learned to play together through projects. And then for jazz band, um, it was a performance-based class, but we embedded projects into them. And I think one of the best projects we did was last year um, when the students, I just noticed that the students were so into jamming out every day when they came before class and then after class, I had to shoo them away to get to their next class. And they actually created all of their music for one of their concerts. So it was all originals and it was, incredible and so informative to them as musicians and how they work together. And really, when we were talking about cultivating individual musicianship, right, that's what we tout as music educators, cultivating individual musicianship. How is that really happening if we're standing at the front of the band and telling them everything what to do? So we have to switch that and then allow the students to own own that individual musicianship. So I decided with their approval, or we kind of collectively decided that for their winter concert, they would create all the music. And it was incredible. And maybe that's for another day, but it was it was probably I, I, the riskiest thing I've ever done. Did they write yeah. the music down? Or did they so do they wrote it in a way, yeah, they wrote it down in ways that was meaningful for them. So okay. for some of them, they notated it, but it wasn't required. And what actually that really allowed was some, for some really interesting um, songs. So one of them like went between like four, four and seven, four. And I think if I would have had them notate that in five line notation, it would have, it wouldn't Can have been, it up. yeah, it certainly would have. So it was, it was pretty wild. Um, and so they performed their song. They all ultimately all turned into like blues because <laughs> that's a pretty standard format. But one of them, was in F, but for some reason they decided to call it the E sharp blues. Why not? <laughs> Why not? And harmonics. Yes, absolutely. Smart, <laughs> cheeky kids. And then the last thing I'll say about that is last year was when we had all those closures because of cold and snow. And they had all missed like two of their concerts, um, their like large group band concerts. And ours was potentially going to be canceled. And one student said, you know, it would be a real bummer if we canceled, if this concert was canceled, because we actually wrote the music, like the other concerts would have been fun, but we wrote this music and we won't have another chance to play this. And I was like, Whoa, that's, that's pretty intense. Like that ownership, that individual musicianship. So, so anyway. what other, yeah. So what are some other examples of projects that you've done? 
uh, in various classes. Yeah, so, yeah. So I'll talk about like my guitar class. One of the things that South kind of wanted, one of the reasons they brought me on was because they recognized that there was a disparity of the student population in the performing ensembles and then the student population with the rest of the school. And so they pulled the school um, asking them what kinds of classes would you be interested in? And guitar was kind of the top. And um, because we already have X amount of concert bands and orchestras and choirs, there wasn't a huge interest by my team um, and myself, to be honest, to have another performance group. So guitar has always been and always will be a project-based class. And so what it looks like is if you were to walk into my room, uh, my actual classroom when we are in class <laughs> together, <Right. laughs> is a lot of organized chaos. You'd see kids maybe working together on a song. Um, you might see an individual with his headphones on, maybe plugged into their phone working on maybe the same song, but playing along with it. Um, you might see kids writing lyrics. And so the opportunities for students, again, to cultivate that individual musicianship, either alone or together, that it gets to be their choice, um, is, is really at the center of what we do and also creating. So while we might use songs, for example, Example, Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind or the times they are changing to learn how to play chords, um, we then turn it on its head and take those songs and rewrite lyrics so that the students can get experience writing lyrics. And they choose a topic that's interesting to them. Usually it's a political issue. Recently it's been about immigration. It's been about deportation. It's been about the Me Too movement. It's been about... Um, climate change and students learn how to do um, different kinds of stances and different kinds of writing, but then also using the chords in those songs. So that's an example of project-based learning. And so there's individual, the individual gets to make the decision of what song they do, how they write the lyrics, and then I facilitate the understanding of how, how a strumming pattern could go and then how to learn the chords. We learn the chords together, and then I kind of just send them on their way. So that's an example of a project. Right, so as the professional in the room, you're there to guide their creativity. Yeah. You keep feeling, adding fuel, mm -hmm. <laughs> understanding as they go. Yep. In yeah. appropriate doses and appropriate times. Mm -hmm. yeah. and well, you, you, you also um, alluded to the um, student population at your school. I know mm -hmm. that um, South High School has a very diverse uh, student body. And mm -hmm. you talk a lot about how uh, being culturally responsive as a teacher is not just a checkbox. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a mindset. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how <clears throat> music educators, all of us, can can ab approach that paradigm um, better or more effectively? Yes. In fact, it just so happens to be on my desk. There is a really good book that I think everybody should read who's interested in 
and it, it's a simple, it's not simple read, but it's a good read. And there's actual like kind of lesson plan type things. And it's called culturally responsive teaching and music education from understanding to application. And it's by Vicki Lynn and Connie McCoy. And these two women are brilliant scholars and music educators. And so they also like, I, I certainly did not come up with the idea that <laughs> culturally responsive teaching is not a checkbox. I, I got that from them. So it's the idea that, so let's say you have, you know, an African American or black student or brown student, black or brown student in your class. And then you're like, well, I, I need to, you know, I need to select a black composer. Boom, did it. That's not culturally responsive. Um, programming a woman composer is not culturally responsive. It's going deeper. It's the mindset that there is culture in this class already. We are not bringing culture to the students. They already have culture. They come to us with a myriad of backgrounds and experiences. They are already musical beings, right? So a lot of, when I'm working with undergrads and other people, sometimes, the, or just anybody, somebody will say, oh, I have no musical experience. It's like, yes, you do. Do you listen to music? Do you sing in the shower? You are a musical being. And we mm -hmm. have, as a as a profession have to recognize that, that perhaps that musical experience is very different than our own. And we talk about that in my classes. So like the first day I, I chat with the students, like, you know, I grew up in Southeast Wisconsin. My school was like 98% white. Um, you know, I have, both of my parents are still living and they're college educated and that formed kind of my upbringing and where I went to school and some of the things. But that doesn't mean that your experiences are any less important and we can learn from each other. So I'm always talking about like, well, especially in like guitar or sound production, what is the music that you're listening to so that I can learn from them? And it's getting to know the student first and then using that to inform the content. Because if you don't have a relationship with the students, then there's no reason, then there's no reason to try to do any sort of content work. You have to develop those relationships first. And so culturally responsive teaching is the mindset that every student brings something unique and important to the class and truly believing that. Yeah. We have to truly believe that. And culturally responsive teaching is not just about students of color, although that is where it kind of comes from because you can have a majority white school and there's still culture there. And they also need to see that people that don't look like them are equally, you know, important to the world and to the industry and everything, because chances are the music that they are listening to probably is a lot more colorful, even if the music musician looks like them, but maybe the people behind the music, the producers, the writers, you know, the photographers, that whole industry side that we rarely talk about might not look like them. Just acknowledging our own biases, which can be hard, but is also really important. So again, it's a mindset and you cannot check a box for that. Well, you know, Sarah, we had a really interesting roundtable discussion with uh, college seniors in music mm. education they're just student teaching or about to student teach mm -hmm. and they are ready for this conversation you're having. They're not mm -hmm. only, they're bringing it up themselves and they're bringing it up because I think <clears throat> the 
professors are bringing it up and your name actually was mentioned once in that interview. <laughs> um, so I know that you're also an adjunct faculty at St. Thomas University. Mm -hmm. With respect to music education now, shifting gears from South High School to your mm -hmm. university, how do, these, how do those teacher education programs better prepare our future teachers, music educators, and be flexible learners and teachers themselves? I feel really good where music education is heading with these conversations because the students that I get to work with are right, I mean, they're right there, right? They they are also really yeah, willing. Talked, certainly were. They were right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, they're right there. They are willing to at least sit in on those conversations, at least be present with those conversations, even though if it's uncomfortable for them, I think they're living in a time where those conversations have been occurring, whereas our generation and older, we're like, wait a second, what? Like, no, 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 we don't need to have those conversations. We're just gonna play the music and it'll be fine. It's not fine anymore. We're living in a society and certainly a world right now where we just can't ignore that. And so I'm yeah. just so impressed with the maturity that the students are bringing to these conversations. Bradley, you had a yeah moment. Yeah, well, I thought it was cool because um, during that, that round table, um, the, the students all went, went around and, and one of them said, yeah, I, we have a guitar class at my school where I'm student teaching. And the next one said, yeah, we have a beginner band class. And the next one said, yeah, we have rock band. And it was, it was, it dawned on me that I think that these music uh, education faculty at Minnesota colleges and universities are also being really smart and thoughtful about where they're placing their students by placing mm -hmm. them in schools that have this sort of programming because mm -hmm. um, this isn't going to change overnight but unless we get music ed students um, embracing this as part of music education and then putting them in schools where uh, teachers are doing it and doing it effectively then it's really going to spread because um, that's so important yeah, and it's really interesting too because I've, in my time at South, no, I've had three student teachers, but only one has actually wanted to do like my job. And so it's interesting because as I work, so I, I teach secondary general methods right now over at St. Thomas, and even my intro to music ed class, they were like, I didn't know this kind of job existed. And yeah. it, it really, right doesn't quite get I mean there are people that are teaching these classes but to Doing be solely like mm -hmm. the secondary general music whatever it is I do I, I still don't even know exactly yeah. the correct title I mean and I know we've had that conversation what does it even mean and it's like it can mean anything and I think um, the more people there are there are out there that are doing my thing and there are we just kind of have to kind of figure yeah. out who the unicorns are. <laughs> and I think well, you, you also make a really good point that most students, when they go into music education and most of those faculty members at colleges still think of band oh, as yeah. the traditional band. Mm -hmm. um, so like we know this other <laughs> secondary general music paradigm is out there, but yeah, you're probably one of the only people I know, maybe the only one that actually is doing it full time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And serendipitously, I mean, you fell into a job that was ready for you mm -hmm. and a place that was ready for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but 
so if you get your crystal ball out, Sarah, and you just imagine 10 years forward, um, what is banned? And I don't, I don't look at it as a competitive. I think what we're doing is reaching more students. Oh, gosh, Period. yes. Reaching yes. more students. Mm-hmm. And if band is vehicle, it doesn't mean the band goes away. It means that more is more. Yes, and, and that's oh, that whole both and thing that Dr. Alsup talks about. And this past, or we're, we're in the spring. <laughs> what year are we in? What month is this? <laughs> COVID-19. Ah! Last spring, or I last summer, I did a um, survey for NNEA about this, and people were teaching this. And there were a couple fears that, um, one fear I'm going to quote, was that this is going to cannibalize banned and it's not and I think people need to realize I know it can be scary but if let's for instance a kid decides you know what band's not for me I'm going to take guitar I'm going to take piano I'm going to do whatever they're still making music right and that has got to be our number one priority is making music it and I know that there are states that really cling to competitions and the ratings and all that. And again, we've been having this conversation since um, the Tanglewood Symposium in the 60s, right? So right. this, and so it's, it's been a really slow process, <laughs> but here we are and we have educators, music educators that are like, oh my gosh, these are the coolest things ever. Let's start providing opportunities. So then we have to like, convince admin that this is this is a thing and that's a conversation that comes up in my classes like how do you convince admin that this is really important and it is a thing and I feel really fortunate that I get to work with a really supportive admin and a supportive team and there's a lot of autonomy I've never really been questioned about what I'm doing, which is probably good because there's some days where I walk out of the classroom, I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> so those moments still happen because I know band directors have that, like, what the heck just happened in that rehearsal? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we all have those rehearsals. Yes, right? but your crystal ball question, what were you yes. going to ask? Well, 10 years forward, what do what do classrooms look like? More like your classroom looks today? <clears throat> What, or you, what would be your dream? You know, performance classes need to stay. I was a band kid. I, I was, that was really important to me. But I also think there's, there's space for us to allow more individual work. So even, let's, let's, even if it was um, a, a concert where it was all student created maybe it's small groups or maybe it's not concerts maybe they're informances maybe it's come on parents let's experience this together um, my students in jazz band last year were so inspired by snarky puppy and <laughs> the like how they do their recording sessions and the um, audience that gets to sit in on that recording session and they're like can we invite our audience on the stage because they recognized that being on a stage and the separation of the band and the audience really felt distant distant and so Mm -hmm. we started instead of saying performing we're going to share our music and we invited the audience to experience the music and i wonder if Yes, they're performance-based classes, but can we maybe 
think about how we're sharing music rather than performing, because I think performing can be really loaded and it, mm -hmm. it can create some sort of anxiety with students and it has to be a certain way. And for us directors, it has to be a certain way. But yeah. if we change that and just be like, let's experience something together. Well, and there's, we, we've developed, you know, Western classical music has developed so many rules, you know, mm -hmm. the things that you were supposed to do and not supposed to do when you go to the opera and, mm -hmm. and how, how upset people get if someone claps between movements of a symphony. Mm -hmm. It's also just arbitrary, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the art form or the mm -hmm. musical expression. It's a, it's a rule for the sake of creating a rule. Think about what we've done to jazz music. Like we've taken it from <laughs> a club setting and put it on a stage yeah. in a way that it, and so then audiences are like, well, am I supposed to clap? What am I supposed to do? And then if the audience gets really like into it, there's like this weird side eye that happens. It's like, this is, this is what's supposed to be happening. And so I think maybe if we loosen the reins just a little bit and um, implore our, our young musicians to experience the music and move with the music and be, I don't want to say raucous, but like dig deep. And I think one of the ways we could probably do that is by encouraging them to create their own music. I'm sorry, but asking students to write in dynamics or choose their own dynamic is not creating. It's making a mark or maybe, you know, whatever, a but a choice, but that's not creating. Creating is owning something and making your own understanding of it. So uh, I taught a freshman seminar in leadership and I had 20 mm. students from mm. across the university, uh, non-musicians. And we came up with a company. We, we gave it a mission statement. We came up with an advertising campaign and we wrote a song. We wrote, and that was the, that day was so much fun. In 40 minutes, there was nothing. And 40 minutes later, there was something. Mm -hmm. We created, we created a jam. Yeah, and absolutely. It was actually quite, yeah, it was well, and I mean, I think to like all the music that has been put on the web as a result of like being self-isolated and the song of the virus thing. I mean that, <laughs> and even my, um, my undergrads last <laughs> night, I, on our zoom, I had them go into little breakout rooms. There's 13 of them. And within 40 minutes, they all had recreated lyrics and we shared our music online and it, and it was the best part of my whole week. And they, it was the best part of their week because they got to connect and they got to create. And it wasn't about perfection. It was about expression. It was about impressing. It was about expressing. And so I just think that it was, it was so, I mean, there was a guitar and tuba duet. <laughs> you know, of course was there just, was. Of course, of course there, was. there was. It was a cover right. of a Green Day song. <laughs> so I just, you know, it was, it was really beautiful. Well, Dr. Minette, uh, I think we've covered, we've covered a lot. Yeah. We've covered a lot. Yet I also feel like we just kind of scratched the surface. I think this is appropriate, though, because mm -hmm. this is um, um, something that we are still learning about, for better or worse. Um, and it's something that we can get much better at. So this has really been a great conversation, sir. I want to thank you for your time today. So in the meantime, this has been another episode in... Band in Minnesota. Oh, that was good. She said it real fast. 
Ooh, we got a different inflection. Yeah. And you know what else you can do real fast is that you could go on Apple Podcasts and you could rate or review us. <laughs>